This Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use offer code SPOILER5. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Behind the Candelabra, the new Steven Soderbergh Liberace biopic on HBO. And joining me from Slate's DC Bureau is Dan Coyce. Hello, Dan. Hey, Dana. How are you? You are a senior editor at Slate. I am, and our resident Steven Soderbergh uh, completist. Yes, I was about to say you wrote a completist column, which is to say that you went back and revisited all the works of Soderbergh for a, a long consideration, including you really went far on yours, right? You read all of his his production journals and his letters, or what was all the stuff that you brought in? Yeah, and I watched this crazy um, short he made for like Showtime in 1994. And I just, I mean, I did everything I could other than I couldn't get all of his student films that he made in high school. But that was a completist completist. I mean, basically, yeah. if there was like a, a Kleenex with his scribbling on it, you encountered it. Right. And now if I was going to be a complete completist, I would have to order all the T-shirts from his new merchandising shop, which just opened yesterday as we're recording this. Which is about merchandising all of his movies or just? No, it's none of his movies. In fact, it's, uh, it's he's selling T-shirts based on like classic movies like uh like the name of the saloon or the name like a, a, a poster for Charles Foster Kane's wife's opera performance are they nice t-shirts t-shirt. that sounds oh, like a great design they're really nice t-shirts yeah they're really good or like the license plate from the car in the french connection wow so now that he's stopped making movies he's just he's creating in a whole other medium now right, okay i'm going right. to go look at those where do you see his t-shirts and stuff it's at extension765.com. That's the longtime name of his like management company, or not management company, but his company that he has run. And now it's also a website, and you can buy those shirts. And he's selling like you can get like the slate from the last day of shooting of um, like out of sight, and you can get uh, you can get like Polaroids that he took, and then also eventually he says he's going to sell some kind of like fancy rum that he discovered while shooting Che, and then he imported like thousands of bottles, and they're sitting in a warehouse in Miami, and he's just figuring out the the legalities of selling it to you. Okay, I would mock the whole enterprise of the store if I was not <laughs> about to get on there and buy something for myself oh, yeah. any minute. It's great stuff. It's great stuff. So behind the candelabra, all right, so before we get into uh, spoiling, let's just get a, a general reaction. I have a feeling that you liked this more than I did. Did you like it? Uh, I liked the first half hour and the last half hour, and I thought the middle hour was super boring. Ah, interesting. Yep. I also have a temporal. I think there's a temporal decline, except I think that the whole last half is is, is kind of boring. Okay, so... Uh, All right, well, let's get into it. So Behind the Candelabra, made for HBO, essentially just because Soderbergh couldn't find funding to make this as a theatrical movie, and he wanted the freedom of of working in a smaller format. Um, We have Michael Douglas as Liberace, which is a part that Soderbergh's been wanting him to play for a decade or so, ever since, apparently, Michael Douglas erupted into a Liberace impersonation on the set of Traffic. And and Matt Damon as Scott Thorson, who was Liberace's much younger, 40 years younger lover. I think they were together for about five years, right? The 70s through the the mid-80s? Yeah, 70s. 77 to 84, it looks like. And uh, and Thorson subsequently uh, sued him for palimony when, after they broke up and then wrote a kind of tell-all memoir about him, which I gather was the first time that Liberace's gayness was really 
brought out into the public sphere, correct? It was, it was the first time anyone wrote about it and did was not sued for libel by Liberace. Right, successfully and, and sued. Court. Right, right. right. So can we both agree that the casting is great? I mean, I think what makes the first hour so energetic, in addition to the fabulous costumes and the kind of glorious production design, is that it's really interesting to see Michael Douglas and Matt Damon in these roles as lovers with these very, um, you know, exaggerated personalities. It made me realize that Michael Douglas doesn't usually transform himself a lot for his roles. I mean, even in his best roles... There's a sort of essential Michael Douglasness to him, which often has to do with, you know, among other things, a very macho, straight sexuality and his presentation as such. So to see him as this flaming queen was just a great novelty in itself. It was interesting. You know, I was talking with a neighbor of mine this morning and telling him about this movie. And he was like, well, does Michael Michael Douglas just seems like Michael Douglas, right? And I thought, wait a minute. This is the first thing where he didn't just seem like Michael Douglas. And so, yeah, he does. It is an interesting transformation. Although one of the things that I liked about the movie were the those moments where the sharky Michael Douglasness comes out, uh, where all of a sudden, you know, he when he erupts into anger or all of a sudden becomes like the boss, ordering Matt Damon's character around. Like I thought those were interesting moments as well because those were when he let his Michael Douglas shine. Right. You mean his Michael Douglasness being some sort of essential, like you call it a shark-like quality, like some sort of aggressive, predatory, yeah. self-serving. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think this is what he's so good at playing in this role is that apparently Liberace was this you know, externally very sweet and generous man who sort of loved to shower his lovers and friends with luxurious gifts, etc. But at the moments that he's crossed, he can get very bitter and very dark and also just kind of shield himself completely and do things like make his lawyer or rather his manager, played by Dan Aykroyd, do the breaking up for him. Right. So, yeah, I really liked I really liked both of them in this role, though, in these roles, although I will ask, how old was Scott Thorson supposed to be? Oh, yeah, we have to talk about makeup and age makeup and prosthetics, right. When they yeah. met, I read somewhere that Thorson was supposed to be in his teens. They didn't say the exact age. I don't even know whether he was legal or not. But over the course of the five or six year span this movie covers, we see Matt Damon turn from, I guess, the teen or very young 20s guy he's supposed to be when he first wanders into Liberace's dressing room after a show to this heavily plastic surgeried, made up, very worn out looking, drug addicted, just kind of freak that he is by the end. Yeah. And, and I, thought, a... I thought the transformation was pretty well affected given how hard youth and age makeup are to do. I mean, if you compare this to, you know, like um, something like J. Edgar or Cloud Atlas, two movies that have flamboyantly used makeup to, to age and change people in the last couple of years, I thought it was pretty successful. I mean, Matt Damon must be, what, 40 now or in his late 30s? And I'm not sure he looked in his teens when they made him up to look younger and filtered him through whatever they filtered him through. But he certainly looked in his 20s. Uh, says you. But uh, I mean, I, I do think that the old age makeup and, the, and especially the the plastic surgery prosthetics they used on Damon to make him look like someone who underwent plastic surgery. Because one of the crazy things in this movie is that Liberace uh, had his doctor give Scott Thorson plastic surgery to make him look like young Liberace. Uh, and I thought those prosthetics were very effective. But one of the reasons they're more effective than something like Cloud Atlas or J. Edgar is that they're not meant to be unobtrusive, right? In J. Edgar, the whole idea is that we're supposed to not notice them. In this, they're supposed to ape kind of bad plastic surgery. Right. It's a lot easier to design a prosthetic that apes bad plastic surgery than it is one that looks natural. Yeah. The, the, the movie in general seems fascinated with plastic surgery. It almost seems like Soderbergh would happily have gone down the wormhole of just making the, the whole thing about you know their, their, their self-modifications. And Rob Lowe, who plays the plastic surgeon, also oh has God. all kinds of sickening prosthetics where his face looks very tight and drawn, and one of his eyes is more closed than the other, and it's just incredibly creepy to look at him. And he's very funny, I think. He really, really bites into 
into that role. He is the greatest in this movie. I loved him in this movie. He's so horrifying in every scene. Uh, he's totally great. But so uh, to spoil, I guess, the plot, it's that uh, Scott Thorson and Lee Liberace fall in love. And then Scott Thorson moves in and becomes his like gopher and driver and best boy and chauffeur and assistant. Um and then it sort of all goes sour, and then Liberace falls for a younger guy, and then Scott Thorson sues him for palimony and falls into drugs, and then Liberace dies of AIDS. <laughs> the end. <laughs> and so when did you think things started to, to go south? I mean, not just for the couple, but for the movie. Because to me, it was right around the time when Thorson started to get heavily into drugs. It actually reminded me a little bit of the drug subplot in Magic Mike, which I thought was the weakest part of that movie. It's the Soderbergh movie. The the moment when the, uh, the, the young, boring main character who we don't care about because we only care about the Channing Tatum story gets addicted to drugs and it becomes this very standard, you know, downhill decline sort of, sort of thing. And I felt like the last hour of this movie was the same. It was a very standard showbiz biopic, including the Citizen Kane referencing the scene of, you know, somebody in a state of advanced grief and rage wrecking a room full of priceless treasures. Right. And throwing things at Liberace's painting. Yes. All that stuff was like, eh, I I didn't care about any of that stuff. And I mean, that is the story uh, as Scott Thorson tells it. And so I don't know what you're going to do about it. But like, yes, the structure of it was so unsurprising and I could feel every beat coming long before it came. And so I didn't get – I wasn't happy with the movie again until the end when it started to surprise me a little. When Liberace got sick and Scott had sort of put his life back a little together a little bit and he visits Liberace in his last days. And then the funeral and the f- movie's final flourish, which I thought was really lovely and which I really liked quite a bit. What did you think of that? Oh, you mean the, the moment where Scott's at the funeral and he imagines a Liberace show, essentially? Right. Yeah, yeah. Or like I thought of it as the funeral that Liberace would have wanted to have in a perfect world. Yeah, it was it was it was a good dream sequence, but it came so out from out of nowhere that by that time I felt sort of manipulated by the movie. I mean, if we had seen earlier, for example, that Liberace did occasionally fly into his shows, he would be rigged to wires and come flying onto the stage for these elaborate Vegas shows, then. I think that scene might have been a little bit more resonant, right? Instead of the well, flying just being something happening in Scotland. He Lord. talked about it. Like Liberace mentions that at one point in the movie that he wishes he could fly. And then there's a there's a caption after that scene that tells us that in his final shows at Radio City Music Hall, he was indeed flown in and out of the stage. Um, and so I liked it really as like a, something that we'd heard mentioned and then a flourish that we see at the end that is like Scott's imagination of – what he wishes for this person who made his life and ruined his life in sort of equal measures. Um, And it should be noted that Scott Thorson, I mean, is still around and still alive and currently in jail. um, Right. He was just involved in some kind of credit card scam, right? Yeah. Well, he, yeah, he's had a real, he's had quite a life, man. He was in the witness protection program for a while um, because of some kind of like murder with mobsters and um, and now, yes, he's back in jail for credit card fraud and identity theft. Um, so it's worth noting that almost everything in this movie should be taken with a grain of salt. I mean, uh, by all accounts, Liberace was, as many famous crazy people are, a little bit of a monster. But also many of the delightful details in this could just as easily be something that Scott Thorson made up, including my favorite detail – can we get into my absolute favorite detail from this movie? Yeah, but I can't guess what it could possibly be. It's that uh, Liberace claims that he lost his virginity to a Green Bay Packer. <laughs> 
It's a great moment in Wisconsin history. So the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, needless to say, is all over this. They have published a couple of stories already this week uh, on the issue of Liberace's deflowering by a Green Bay Packer. Well, did that, did that fact already appear in Thorson's book? It was in it was in Thorson's book, yes. But now this is a big deal. It's on HBO. And so the identity of the Green Bay Packer is being investigated. Well, not really. It's pretty pretty hard to figure out because it was 1939. That was a long time ago. <laughs> Uh, and That's the it w- movie Soderbergh should have made. Right. And so, yeah. Oh, my God. I would watch that movie. But the story is so great as Liberace tells it. He tells this great story of he's playing a, uh, like a saloon in Wausau, Wisconsin. And, um, and he says that the, the guy was bigger than the door when he came in. And that was his first love. And uh, he was apparently a lineman on the 1939 Packers who won an NFL championship, by the way. They beat the Giants. And uh, and I had none of those players on, on the offensive or defensive line from that team are like famous or names that I know. But I just love speculating about which one of those had for the rest of his life this memory of being the man who discovered Liberace. <laughs> As a Wisconsinite, you're from Wisconsin, right? Yeah. I yeah. think that you, that's your story. You were born to find that out, to pursue yeah. until the end of your days. That's my fresca. So let's talk about how gay issues are, are presented or not presented in this movie. It's, it's, it's interestingly enough, although it is a movie about an underground gay relationship that had to be hidden from the world and the eventual palimony suit and the scandal, it doesn't really seem to me like a, a movie that tries to be about gay rights or gay issues in any particular way. No, because, the, because though they wanted to keep the relationship hidden from the outside world, the movie itself is also completely closed off from the outside world. Like there's no – Liberace talks about not wanting the papers to find out about things, but – very rarely do we see any evidence of the outside world like caring about these things. And instead, what we see is a completely open relationship. It's just that it only we only see it within Liberace's house. You know, so inside their house, before the staff, before his lawyers, before his managers, they're as free as birds because those people are in Liberace's, uh, uh, you know, they're in his payroll. And so they don't care. And we rarely see any scenes of them like out in the world hiding their relationship from nervous fans. Right. Yeah. There's a very early scene where Damon goes with his friend played by Scott Bakula, who, by the way, is a great character actor that Steven Soderbergh loves to cast in his movies. I always love to see Scott Bakula. He's sort of like the young Alan Rickman. He should play Alan Rickman's son in a movie sometime because he has that vibe a little bit. So the two of them, two young gay guys go to see Liberace play his Vegas show and Damon says as they're as they're watching the show, so I'm really surprised that there's so many people interested in such a gay show, right? The audience is full of women and straight couples and women in fact made up most of Liberace's fandom. And Scott Bakula says, "Oh, nobody has any clue he's gay." And that's what it's something I would have liked to see the movie explore a little bit more is what Liberace's fandom was like, what his reception was like and what he meant to the people who came to his shows. It was totally fascinating that scene because it reminded me in a lot of ways of a lot of the scenes in Magic Mike of these like rapt women in the audience staring at this object of fascination and desire on stage with like no clue what those people's lives were actually like. It's just that in this case, the women were like 80. Right. No, you're right. It's, but that chemistry was not explored in near the way it was in Magic Mike. And obviously, right. they're less demonstrative. They're not going to be up there stuffing dollars in Liberace's G-string. <laughs> but it seems like there was a very um, – and, and in the way Liberace was marketed and presented to the press, there was a very kind of heterosexual assumption, you know, which looking back was so completely absurd. And, you know, the question of when will Liberace find the right woman and all of that. Right. Okay, it really ta- was a marvelous time <laughs> of of total – Total oblivion, obliviousness on the part of like middle Americans. It was amazing. Dan, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor and then we'll get back to Behind the Candelabra. 
This episode of the Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. At Shutterstock.com, you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project, whether it's a website, an ad, a multimedia presentation, or any kind of film project. They have over 700,000 high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, and 3D motion graphics. They have clips in a variety of digital formats, and most come in HD. Shutterstock sources video clips from around the world and puts them at your fingertips, and they add 10,000 new clips every week, so whenever you visit, you'll find something new. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account, no credit card needed. Just start an account, begin using Shutterstock to help imagine what your next project could be like, and save video selections you find to your clip box. Once you decide to purchase, use the offer code SPOILER5, and new accounts will receive 30% off any package. So again, that's Shutterstock.com, and for 30% off new accounts, use the offer code SPOILER5. The Spoiler Special thanks Shutterstock for their support. So back to Liberace. So we both agree that Matt Damon and Michael Douglas are really well cast, and I would say that they both kind of deliver their performances really well, but there's something about that relationship. I think it has more to do with the way it's scripted and the way this movie is paced, but there's something about that relationship that remains opaque and stops being interesting to me after the first hour, hour and a half of the movie. Yeah, I mean, even earlier for me, but I agree with you. And Part of it is that it's there's no exploration beyond the obvious exploration, really. Like, we get a sense that Matt Damon does grow to love Lee in some way, but we don't see what it is that he loves about him. We don't get a sense, really, of them caring about each other. What we get a sense of is the true... Because the movie is so obsessed with surfaces and images and shopping, um, we get a sense of the financial arrangement between them very clearly. Um, and that makes sense to me. You know, that's a that's an, a relationship that I understand. But we're certainly meant to believe that it ended up meaning so much more for each of them, but I never really understood why. Yeah, I mean, the movie seems to toggle effortlessly between, you know, their relationship is completely superficial and it's all about bling and, you know, drinking champagne in a bubble bath and doing all the excessive things that it, you do when you live with Liberace. But... Then suddenly, for example, when the younger guy comes in and displaces Scott Thorson, we get these scenes like the destroying of luxury items. You know, we get these scenes of incredible, jealous, erotic rage, which seems somewhat surprising given that earlier they were both somewhat casually talking about, should we have an open relationship? Well, I mean, Lee was casually talking about it. I don't think that – I think we're meant to believe that Scott was – did not love that at all, that, that he that he loved Lee and knew that this was the death knell for the relationship but felt powerless to – respond in any other way. And I mean, one of the strengths that the movie does have, I will say, is that Soderbergh, as always, is very smart about exploring the power dynamics between people. And maybe the reason that this felt static to me is that I never, that power dynamic never shifted. You know, Scott Thorson never had really any pull in this relationship. He was always, he was always going to be um, you know, I'm trying to think of a polite way to say this, but even though he was the top in their relationship, he was always going to be the bottom in their power dynamic. And so there's no explore, exploration of that of that disparity, and there was no sense that that could ever evolve. He never had any leverage or any purchase in that relationship. Is, you know, Liberace's staff always hated him. They always dismissed him. Liberace always could pay for everything. Every time they got in a fight, Liberace won. And so, like, you never got the sense that there ever could be any movement there. And that was frustrating for me. Maybe we needed to know a little bit more about what was going on in Scott Thorson's head, you know, like in terms of their attachment. I mean, it's a very, very strange way that Liberace frames their relationship, which I assume is true to Thorson's book, that sometimes he sees himself as the father, the brother. He says at one point, I want to be everything to you, your father, your brother, your lover. It's really perverse. Right, right. And so what about 
Scott Thorson made that appeal to him. You know, we get a little bit about his his damaged childhood and being shuffled from one foster home to another, and his foster parents are actually minor characters in the movie. But you don't quite see how he got to be such a needy person that that relationship was enough for him, you know, was enough to sustain him for all those years. Right, that he was willing to be legally adopted by Liberace, which was indeed at one point their plan. But th- th- that is a moment, actually, that obliquely the movie does deal with gay rights, right? Because their desire to to fulfill this this weird adoption fantasy is sort of a substitute for marriage, which is not something that they would even have considered that would have crossed their minds at that time. Right. And then when it all sort of goes to hell in the mid-80s, Scott Thorson basically has no rights because their only contract is viewed by by the legal system functionally as a contract for sex, which is unenforceable, as opposed to any kind of like prenuptial agreement or even domestic partnership. Right. And Liberace denies even that, right? He denies during right. the suit that they, they had sex and says, no, this was just my houseboy and my assistant. Right. I mean, and that's all. I mean, whatever. And saying it's dealt with is a way of saying that it is mentioned in passing because those are things that happen. But it's not like the movie cares at all about exploring those, nor should it necessarily. Um, but, but no, I mean, the, those issues are dealt with and discarded almost instantly. They're sort of all in the hands of Dan Aykroyd's hilarious lawyer character and his amazing glasses. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of good side characters. I also liked Paul Reiser as the as the, as Thorson's lawyer at the end. Yes, it was funny he to was see great. him pop up. And Nikki Cat as his dealer, who appa- I think only appears in Steven Soderbergh movies now. He, oh, like, I takes didn't this, recognize that guy. He takes an eight-year break and then he's in another Soderbergh movie. I mean, I'm sure I'll look at his IMDb page and he's in a million things, but like, this is the only place where he ever registers for me and he's always great. Yeah, Soderbergh more and more has this kind of repertory company, right? He's worked with Michael Douglas before in Traffic and in – what else did Michael Douglas do with him? Something else. Haywire. Yeah. Right? And then, of course, Matt Damon is a regular in The Informant and in The Ocean's movies and everywhere. So let's oh, yeah. talk about Soderbergh. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Did you have – No, I was, uh, I was just going to make the same segue as you that, yes, he has this repertory company who apparently are all going to be very sad and possibly poor when Soderbergh retires as he claims he has done after this movie. Yeah, this is supposedly, according to him, his his last film. But I think none of us are really giving that much credit at this point, right? Right. Well, so he's already sort of backed away from it a little bit. At, at Cannes, he apparently has said, I'm taking a break. I don't know how long it will be. Maybe it will be forever. So, I mean, come on. The guy is clearly – I predict – let's make predictions maybe. What's the over-under on how long before he has another feature out? I say he has a feature by Christmas – 2016. That's my prediction. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, but you're talking about a feature film. Yeah. I think he will create another work within the next two years, but I don't know that it will be a, a feature film. Maybe a, just to, to save face, he has to stay out of that world for a little a while. A cinematic work of some kind, and it'll end up on like the Extension 765 YouTube channel. But actually, now that he's, you told me about this t-shirt shop, and he's doing the Twitter novel and all this weird stuff he's doing, I sort of hope he does stay out of movies for a while, just so his apparently still churning imagination can do something else. Are you reading the Twitter novel, or are you just going to wait till it's an actual novel? I don't follow him on Twitter. Should I? The fact that he doesn't follow anyone, whenever there's a famous person on Twitter and they're following <laughs> zero people or one person, then I feel like they're not doing it right. But should I be? Bituation, uh, right? That's his handle. Bitch, yeah, Bituation is his handle. Uh, no, I find his Twitter feed actually unbelievably frustrating and overwhelming because it's silent for like months. And then all of a sudden he publishes an entire novella in a night and it doesn't make any sense 
and it's like overwhelming my feed. So no, I say don't follow him. Yeah, I mean, I think in general the serial thing, unless it's it's time limited, like I am now going to do a story for a night. That kind of stuff is interesting, but I can't I can't keep up with some kind of serialized Twitter feed that goes on for days and months. But he is just an interesting guy in that he seems to have, as you say, this relentless churning creativity that he needs outlets for. And so his frustration with film, while he said that it's a formal frustration with the limitations of storytelling within film, you know, it also just seems like he it's not as though he's run out of stories to tell. You know, the guy clearly wants to keep making things and doing things. I mean, for God's sake, the, he, for this extension 765, he was manufacturing a new kind of headphones because he hates headphones. But he wants headphones that are good, so he's making his own and he's going to sell them. You know, so the guy clearly is always going to be moving. He's never going to stop moving. And so calling anything that he does retirement seems crazy. And it just seems unthinkable to me that he will not eventually go back to making moving pictures on screens because because he just really loves it. I mean, everything that you've – every interview he's ever given suggests that the one – time that he is really, really happy is when he's on a set making a movie. He doesn't really like pre-production. He doesn't like meetings. He doesn't love post-production. He certainly hates promotion, but he's really happy when he is on a set solving problems. Right. And, and actually holding the camera, right? Because he's his own right. cinematographer. He's his own cinematographer. He just wants to be there doing stuff. And he w- likes moving fast and he likes moving efficiently, but he just likes being there in that environment. And that is his world. And so it's just hard for me to imagine that he would that he would not do that again because it seems to be what he loves the most. Yeah, he should have framed it as a sabbatical in the first place because he's going to have to walk it back and endure some mockery. But I, I hope he gets back into the game. But I will say that like one benefit of being Steven Soderbergh is that he doesn't seem to give a shit about being mocked. You know, he doesn't. He you know he reminds me in a lot of ways of uh, of many great editors and journalists I know whose take on just trying something and failing is, well, it's better to just try it and screw it up. And if it doesn't work, just go on to the next thing as opposed to like worrying endlessly about how the things he does are going to be received. He doesn't seem to care about that at all. Yeah, I agree, Dan. That's a great quality of his and one that makes me patient even with movies like this Liberace movie that don't completely fly. You know, he he threw it at the wall. It has some great things in it. And I actually do recommend it to people if they're interested just for the casting, the performances, and also the production design and the costumes, which are pretty extraordinary. Oh, also, did you know it's Marvin Hamlish's last score ever? Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. my gosh. He died in 2012, so I guess he had already scored this uh, before he was gone. And his t- slightly schmaltzy style goes perfectly with the material. Yeah, it's a great score. It works really well. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, he did um, uh, the, informant. the other Matt Damon movie, The Informant. And which I has mean. an inc- incredible score, a whole yeah. weird sort of cartoony, bouncy. That's one of my favorite movie scores in years, actually. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so in my in my ranking, I'm looking back at my completest ranking, Sutterberg ranking, and I would probably put this uh, in the interesting failures. Like I think that there are a lot of things to recommend it, and it's certainly watchable, like almost every movie Sutterberg's ever made. But I don't think it's really that successful in the end. I'd put it with um, with Grey's Anatomy, Girlfriend Experience, Good German, and Full Frontal as movies that don't really work but are still totally watchable and uh, and certainly have good things going in them. And are so wildly different from each other. I mean, that in itself is an argument for, for watching some Soderbergh. Yeah. So, Dan, thank you so much for coming in to spoil Behind the Candelabra with me. Thanks so much, Dana. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.